Captain's Log, first entry, dated April 1st, 2020. I am Captain Ian Carr, and you are listening to The Captain's Log. Welcome to the first entry in The Captain's Log. If you listen to the intro, you'll have a bit of context as to what this is and what it's going to be. If you haven't had a chance to, just go listen to that. It's super short. It's only a minute or two long, and we'll give you a bit of context as to what this is going to be. In this episode of The Captain's Log, we're going to look at scale and scope, talk a bit about astronomy, a bit about Star Wars, the new comet that's coming through our night sky, and just a, a whole bunch of space stuff. Now, if you don't enjoy Star Wars, if you've never seen it, or you don't like astronomy, that's fine. You don't have to have seen Star Wars, you don't have to have liked astronomy for this to make sense, hopefully. So to begin this adventure in my thoughts and in my brain space, let's start by looking at Genesis 1. Genesis 1.1 In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. I've been thinking a lot about scale lately. Like the size of things and the way that we evaluate and the little tricks that we use in our society and in our community to evaluate and comprehend distance, length, weight, size, all of these different things. Stuff that we might even take for granted. The other day, my wife and I were watching Star Wars. Fantastic. We love it. You know, it's, it's good and all. And uh, in the, the newest trilogy, there's a, a ship called a Dreadnought. And don't tune out if you're not a sci-fi fan. It's fine. It's got, it's not really, you don't need to know about Star Wars to follow this. But there's a class of ship called a Dreadnought, and I was kind of looking, thinking to myself, what size is this? You know, I know in the original trilogy, there's the Star Destroyers, and there's different size of, dis- of Star Destroyers. And then you've got kind of Darth Vader's mega Star Destroyer, the, the ship that I, I thought the Dreadnought might be sort of inspired after. And so I look it up, and somewhere in some fan website, it says that Star Destroyers are usually uh, about a kilometer or so. And this uh, Imperial, the, the Darth Vader Star Destroyer, the big one, whose name escapes me, I'm sorry, is a few kilometers long. And so I'm like, okay, that's, that's a pretty good size. I feel like if you have to walk from one end of the ship to the other, that's going to take you quite a lot of time. So there's 1.8 kilometers in a mile. I'm like, man, that's a, that's a big ship. And even if these numbers are wrong, like even if they're just made up and they're fan numbers and it's it's I'm getting them completely wrong in my head I can kind of conceptualize a kilometer I can sort of conceptualize how long it takes me to drive a kilometer you know you might even step back a bit and say a kilometer is only a few football fields like 3.1 football fields I can see that in my head I can kind of envision how long that would look because I feel like I have a generally good idea of how long a football field is. And the weird thing is, I don't know that I've ever been to a professional football stadium and stood on the field. And in fact, I know I haven't. Um, 
I've been in professional sporting places, but never stood on a football field. And I feel like that is an easy way for me to conceptualize a kilometer, roughly 3.1 football fields. When you think about it, maybe in, in terms of steps, though, how many steps would it take me to walk a kilometer? That gets a little trickier. You know, if you think about how many steps it takes to walk a kilometer or to walk a mile, the average person uh, that needs to walk one mile would take uh, maybe with their being about two foot step length, about 2000 steps to walk one mile. So 10,000 steps or so being about five miles. That's a little bit harder for me to think about. I don't actually know how many steps it takes me to get from my, from my house to my car. So it's hard for me to conceptualize that. We as humans have created all sorts of neat ways and little tricks to help us think we understand how big things are. I know it takes me about 10 minutes to drive to the office in the morning. I know that with traffic and things, it, I can count on 10 to 12 minutes. If I were to drop my son off at school at about 8.40, I can be there by nine at the latest. So in that 10 minutes, I drive about 4.9 miles. So five miles. Obviously, you can get somewhere that's five miles away faster than in 10 minutes. If you're able to cover that distance at 60 miles an hour, you'll get there in about five minutes assuming there's no traffic or anything else interfering. By thinking this way, then you can figure out maybe how long it takes you to drive from Dallas to Houston. I know it'll take me four and a half or five hours to travel from Dallas to Houston because I know roughly how long it takes me to drive a mile. I know that when I have to travel to different places for work that I go on regular, how long it will take me. I can count on two hours to get to this one place. And a lot of that in my head is based on this idea of going 60 miles an hour. Using the unit of 60 miles an hour, which I, I understand is the combination of a couple units, but using this unit, I can conceptualize some pretty good distances. Hey, this is how far it's going to get me. I couldn't look off of a hot air balloon hovering over Dallas and on the clearest of clear days, see the tips of the towers in Houston and say, yeah, that's about 400 miles, 200 miles. It's a five hour drive, whatever it is. I, I couldn't do that by looking at it, but I use these numbers to help me understand. We do everything in our power as humans to make things feel smaller. I don't always think this is on purpose, but it does seem to be a trend. We do a lot of things to make things feel smaller. We can really conceptualize things between zero and a hundred really well. I can tell you how far a hundred feet is for me. I can tell you whether or not I could eat a hundred Cheetos. And I could tell you that I definitely could not eat 100 cheese pizzas. 100 is a pretty good number. I know how $100 looks when you break it out into twenties or fives. I don't think I've ever thought about how much a hundred dollars looks like in half pennies though, because we don't work with half pennies anymore. But when we start to look at things that are bigger than 100, when we start to look at things like thousands and millions, thousands of miles away, it might feel attainable in our brain, but I'm pretty sure that most of us don't 
actually have a good grasp on this. Let me give you an example. I watched a video a while ago and a guy went around his office and said, if I stacked a million pieces of paper, just normal copy paper, one on top of the other, how high do you think it would go? And this is really, at least in the question, to the people that he's asking it to, based around the context of the space that they're in. They're just assuming he's talking about like, okay, from floor to ceiling. And the room that they're in is has like a 20-foot ceiling for the most of them. Some of them jumped and touched a place on the wall and said this high. You know, I think it's only going to go this high. A million sheets of paper, easily it's going to go to the roof. And so their answers really varied. But what's really amazing is, is we as people don't have a good grasp of a number like one million. And one million sheets of paper stacked one on top of the other would be roughly 328 feet high. Take a football field and stand it on its end. 328 feet. That's a lot of paper. One final example of this. In the realm of astronomy, it is a grand exercise in comprehension. It's trying to make things as bite-sized as possible to understand the cosmos, to understand the scale and the scope of something that is so big and so vast, we really couldn't ever fully comprehend it. When you think about distance in space, and we're talking about measuring how far things are from us or between each other, you think about the moon, and the moon is 238,900 miles from Earth. That's so far. Like, I could not conceptualize based on my utilities of 60 miles per hour and how far that gets me in, in an hour, or in the size of a football field and how much of a mile or a kilometer that is. I can't use those tools to understand and conceptualize how far the moon is. And the sun being 92.9 million miles currently as the day of recording this from earth like there's no there's nothing it's 150 million kilometers there's nothing in my brain that can help me really get a concept of that and so to help us as people study astronomy and as we try to talk about it we come up with other units things like an astronomical unit or a light year different ways of us using smaller numbers to talk about huge, huge distances. It takes one approximately nanosecond for light to travel one foot. It takes 3.3 nanoseconds for it to travel one meter. For light to get from the moon to earth, it's 1.3 seconds. From the sun to earth, 8.3 minutes. And that distance from the sun to earth is what we call an AU, an astronomical unit. And so when we start talking about our neighborhood, it is easier to discuss things in the terms of astronomical units because that's simple. You know, if we're 12 astronomical units from Neptune or something, that's not the real number. I'm just making one up. It's easier for me to say 12 than it is to say 17 million times 10 to the power of 8 miles or something like that. And so we continue this and eventually we get one light year, which is how far light travels in a year, or one parsec, which is how far light travels in 3.2 years. Now I'm aware that not everybody is fascinated by the units of the cosmos and what people and scientists use to study and to talk about and to measure things in our sky. But what I have noticed is people get really excited about comets. 
I'm not really sure what it is about comets. Uh, maybe it's because they're like slow-moving shooting stars that you get to watch for a long period of time. But for some reason, comets excite people. You know, I, I remember learning about Halley's Comet in school and, and how cool it is that it comes around. It's only here every 75 years, and there's a chance that it could appear twice in a person's lifetime. But it's the only regular comet in our solar system. And people have been fascinated by this comet in well into antiquity. Uh, there's even a famous painting of the birth of Christ called the Adoration of the Magi, where the painter models the star of Bethlehem after Halley's Comet because it was sighted four years before he painted this. I don't know exactly why, but comets seem to capture our attention. And so it is very exciting that sometime over the next month, there is a new comet that you can see in the sky with the naked eye. It is going to be a bright blue light. It is a comet that is currently crossing through the orbit of Mars, coming towards Earth as it heads towards the sun. And what makes comets interesting is obviously their bright light and their large tail, which comes from melting ice and frozen gases. And so we're still not sure if this comet is actually going to make it to the sun and warp around and come back out of our solar system there's a very good chance that it will disintegrate and run out of frozen material to off-gas before it gets there. But right now, the off-gas, the atmosphere around this comet created by its gas is five times the size of Jupiter. That's about half the size of the sun. Jupiter is 86,000 miles in diameter, almost 87,000 actually. And in the next month or so, it's predicted to be at its brightest point in our night sky, a bright blue-green light that you could step outside and look up and see. And when we look up, it's going to be a bright light, but it is going to be small in our eyes. But its presence in space is currently half the size of our sun. And yet, from our perspective, it is still so small. It is no wonder that the scientists and the philosophers of antiquity thought we were the center of the universe, we are bigger than everything that we observe in our sky from our perspective. And yet we see in Genesis 1 that this is all created in a moment. That the very beginning of creation, the first act of creation, is not the light, but is the heavens and the earth. In Genesis 1-1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then in Genesis 1-2, we're told that the result of that is this formless, empty, darkness over the surface of the deep. And so God begins to survey what is there and mold and shape it into the earth that we understand today. And from these waters, God casts into existence all of the different things to keep the system going that sustains us. The light, the darkness, the stars, the land, the vegetation, the animals, the fish, the birds, and then even us. And he creates an ordered world out of it. And this all happens in a few sentences, really, in Genesis 1. It happens very quickly. But the scope of this is immense. And we never really could fully comprehend the minute details that go into place in the ordering of the universe. And God even goes so far as to tell us that in the book of Job. You see, after, after Job has cried out to God and his friends have given him all of this poor advice. 
God does take time to respond to Job, and he gives him this sort of virtual tour of the universe. And he says in Job 38, starting at verse 39, Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons, or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens, and can you set up God's dominion over the earth? And for this moment, God reminds Job how small humanity is. While we are an important part of God's creation, his concerns for governing the universe go far beyond our imagination could ever comprehend, no matter what units we decide to put it in. And that is encouraging and great news because we are not called to take care of the universe. We're not called to manage our solar system and to make sure That we are moving quickly enough through space to go around the sun, but not to fly away from it. This is God's work. But so often, we do everything in our power to make things smaller just so we can control it. Ultimately, we seek understanding so we can find productivity in controlling things through that understanding. And I wonder if, if just for a moment... Job thought he was entitled to more control over his life. But when these thoughts creep in, God comes to remind him that he's the governor of the universe. He challenges Job. Have you ever seen the storehouses of snow? Where does it come from? Do you worry about when it needs to snow? Do you worry about when it needs to rain? Do you worry about when it needs to storm? No, God controls that. And ultimately, I think this is one of our biggest struggles and will continue to be a bigger and bigger struggle as humans. As we develop more technology, as we learn more, as we study more, and we gain a deeper understanding of how the universe and the world works, we more and more think we are in control. I'm not saying that technology or science are inherently bad. I love them both. They are a huge part of my life. But ultimately, we need to make sure that we are not placing them in our life as a new God. Science is not in control. Understanding is not in control. Technology is not in control. They are tools for us to use as we live in this world that God has created. And we need to be very careful to not let them become more than that. Ultimately, this boils down to fear and pride but really more so a lack of faith. It does concern me that we see people that have more faith in their phones than they do in God. But that's a rant for another day. The next time that you look up in the sky, maybe you go look up at the comet, maybe you're just out for a walk because you've been in quarantine and you just need some fresh air. Remember that everything that's happening up there happens because God is governing the universe because he has set into motion a system that sustains our physical existence on earth. And that should be an encouragement to us, because while God has relinquished his control over us as individuals, he has called us to pledge that back to him. And he will sustain more than our physical existence. He sustains our very souls. The next time you're driving down the road or you're walking and you see a speed limit sign or a school zone sign, maybe you'll be reminded of this. It doesn't matter what unit we put things in, how small we try to make things. We will never control the nature of the universe. Only God does that. And so trust in him. Have faith. He has sustained it for this long 
Can he not sustain you and your short life in this universe? Will he not continue to sustain us in eternity? I would not be where I am today without his continued sustenance and forgiveness. Well, those are my thoughts on scale and scope in the realm of God. I hope you have enjoyed listening. If you have suggestions, please let me know. You can leave a comment wherever you are listening to this podcast if that platform allows it. Otherwise, head over to Podbean and leave a comment there. You can also email me at thecapslogs at gmail.com. Until next time, I am Captain Ian Carr, and this has been the Captain's Log Entry, April 1st, 2020.